Well, g'day, friends. Uh, just a short question that packs a really big punch for us to kick off with. Uh, do you know who you are? It's a big question, right? I reckon of all of the things that uh, our world is wrestling with, that is right up near the top of it. Do you know who you are? Uh, for some of us, it's the kind of question that comes up amidst the humdrum of life and we find ourselves asking it out of frustration or perhaps even fear because we suddenly feel like we really don't know the answer. But at other points in life, it can feel like an energizing question that drives people on into all kinds of amazing experiences. And it turns out, as my wife and I have discovered, that there's this whole movie genre about it. We've got one of those streaming apps at home. You pull up the video, you, you watch the movie, uh, and then you get to the end of it, and it's got the little recommendations. If you enjoyed this one, check out these titles. The other night, we were watching a film about someone who inherited a property in a beautiful part of Europe from their parents. They didn't even know this property existed. Mum dies, off they go, check it out. And it becomes this whole journey of self-discovery with amazing scenery, quirky characters, uh, really interesting relationships. Uh, we enjoyed the movie, got to the end of it, after all of the, the amazing scenery and the quirky characters, and discovered that it's one of this whole genre of kind of, how would you describe it? It's kind of teen angst coming of age, but it's for like 50 and 60-year-olds in the latter part of their life, wrestling with that question. Do you know who you are? And our world says that we need to work this out in, in a kind of isolation, in the space of our own head and our heart and, and our joys and fears and our hopes and dreams. And if you can throw in a great experience, that'll help more power to you. Do you know who you are? But in response to this question, Jesus poses us another one that runs even deeper. Do you know whose you are? Jesus looks at us in all the circumstances of our lives and asks us this deeper question that alone will enable us to genuinely come to grips with the one that we started with. Do you know whose you are? And that's what lies at the heart of today's passage. Now, to unpack it, we're going to fly over the first part of our reading really quickly and focus in on those final two verses. Those final two verses from verse 16, where Jesus took a coin and he asked, Whose image is this? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. But to understand what's going on here, let's start at the beginning, but move pretty quickly along the way. You see, first, Jesus has a word to the religious leaders to help them to see who they are and who were they. Well, according to this story, they are tenants in breach of contract. Now, it's a story that might feel a bit obscure to us. After all, I don't know if any one of us owns a vineyard. But even more obviously, surely it's just a totally unrealistic scenario to imagine a bunch of tenants who would flog and kill the messengers sent by the landlord to take the rent. And then even his own son. It's just brutal beyond kind of reality, isn't it? It's very hard to relate to. But clearly, it touched a nerve with the religious leaders. They could relate to what Jesus was talking to. And there's a re reason that the religious leaders recognized immediately that this story was spoken against them, as we read in verse 12. Because Jesus was using an image that was really familiar to them. It's an image that comes from a pivotal chapter in the Old Testament, chapter 5 of the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, and he used the image of a vineyard on a number of occasions. 
Well, let me read to you the foundation of, of that from Isaiah chapter 5. Now, as I do so, I'm going to put Jesus' words from Mark 12 back up on screen. It's a little bit of an experiment, to be honest, but um, I think it'll become pretty clear why the leaders reacted so strongly to Jesus telling this story. Now, if you find it hard to have something different on the screen to what I'm reading for us, then just ignore the screen. Listen to the words of Isaiah chapter 5, because this is what God said in verses 1 to 7 of Isaiah 5. I will sing for the, love, the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out the wine press as well. And then he looked for a crop of grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, concludes Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Can you see why the religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying by his story? They're religious people who knew their Bible. He was taking this passage and making it about them. The people of God were meant to bear good fruit, but the leaders who were meant to help them bear that fruit had rejected the vineyard owner. God had been entirely reasonable with them. Overwhelmingly generous, in fact, sending prophet after prophet after prophet, like Isaiah himself. And yet they had been rejected and even killed. And so now Jesus expands the story. The son himself had come and he would be rejected and killed. Which, of course, is exactly what the religious leaders were plotting to do with Jesus. Jesus told a story that held up a mirror to those religious leaders and told them who they were, tenants in breach of contract. And it set out the consequences to come. They would be booted out and the vineyard would be given to others. As Jesus made clear in chapter 11 of Mark's gospel, change was coming. And the leaders hated Jesus for it. But we might wonder if this is just some abstract lesson for a bunch of religious leaders from a long time ago in a land far, far away. What does it have to do with us? Well, as we come to the next paragraph, Jesus shows us how the underlying lesson here applies to us all. Because as we'll see, Jesus points us to the deeper underlying question that is relevant for us all. And it's not who are you, but whose are you? Jesus' point is that we belong to the one whose image we bear. So let's turn now to the conversation that begins in verse 13. Verse 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Goodness me, how's the flattery? It's sickly. But here's the question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, 
This is a very clever question if you're trying to trap Jesus. Because on the one hand, if he says the Jews should pay the tax, then that makes him a collaborator with the Roman occupation and a sellout to his people. That would put Jesus offside with this whole crowd of Jewish neighbours who are following him around, the crowd that the religious leaders fear. On the other hand, if Jesus says they should refuse to pay the tax, then he's an insurrectionist, a rebel, a criminal wide open to the wrath of the Roman Empire. That's a great trick question. And Jesus gives a genius answer. Continuing in verse 15, Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought him the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? Caesar's, they replied. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, it's a cleverly simple answer to the question about tax. You're using Caesar's money, you've got his currency, so it's reasonable to abide by his expectations. To some extent, if you want to benefit from his structured system of commerce represented by the currency, then you need to play by his rules. But really, sitting beneath this is a much more profound answer that goes way beyond tax. If the coin carries Caesar's image, and therefore Caesar has some claim to it, then consider who carries God's image. And give to God what is God's. And who carries God's image? Well, at this point, Jesus is drawing from one of the most fundamental ideas of the Bible. Humanity does. Every human being does. Because we are all made in the image of God. These religious leaders are trying to ace Jesus with a trick shot serve. And and he fires back a forehand winner down the line. Give to God what is God's and every one of you bears his image. So he has a claim on all of you. And in this crushing return of serve, Jesus brings us to the basic understanding of what it means to be human. And this is so foundational to the Christian worldview that this is a really significant part of what we talked about at Taste and See just this week gone. So we're going to chew over a bit of what Taste and See considered on Thursday, just without the benefit of the amazing meal to go with it. And Jesus is taking us right back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, when we read about the creation of humanity. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. See, that is the reality for all of humanity. That we are made in God's image. Every one of us are image bearers. And the implications of that are enormous. To help us get into that, just consider the simplicity of the phrase that we are made in the image of God. It's a simple phrase that stops us thinking too highly of ourselves, but it also stops us thinking too little of ourselves. First, because it reminds us that we are made. We are made in someone else's image, and that keeps us humble. It reminds us that you and I are not God. We're merely his image bearers. We are contingent on him. We are defined by him. In our society today, people long to be authentic people, knowing who they are and expressing who they are, which is good as far as it goes. But 
we're humbled by this reality from Genesis chapter 1 that we don't create who we are. We're not gods who create ourselves, but dependent creatures made in the image of God. But secondly, this simple phrase reminds us of the profound dignity of being human. Because we are made in the image of God. Every human bears the image of the creator and sustainer of everything. And that's worth pondering further. Because this says that this is a shared quality of every person God has made. This is an intrinsic attribute of being human. It's shared by all, not just those who meet some certain criteria. And it's something that we created in. A dignity that is given to us, not something that we need to achieve or could ever risk losing. What's more, it's a unique dignity in all of creation. If we look over the rest of the creation account, where these verses from Genesis 1 come from, everything else in creation is according to their kind. Fish are created according to their kind. Wild animals are created according to their kinds. Trees are according to their kind. Humanity alone is in the image of God. And I think this is where, for all his intellectual brilliance, Charles Darwin got it profoundly wrong at this point. Humanity are not just another form of life in the mix of evolutionary accidents. We have a unique dignity as the bearers of God's image. Now that basic truth is the Bible's foundation for what we would call self-esteem. The reason that we esteem ourselves in the Bible's eyes is because we are dignified because of whose you are, created in the image of God. It's also the Bible's foundation of the way that we esteem others, the way that we treat other people. Every person is dignified because of whose they are made in the image of God. We don't have to pause for very long to realise how that stands in a radical contrast to the way that the world thinks. I've had a simple attempt to try and sum up how I think the world kind of attributes human dignity, thinks about human dignity. Other people might use different categories, but I think these three are just helpful to summarise things. That the world connects our dignity with our intelligence, our output and our relationships. Our intelligence, that's our ability for, for rational thought. Surely that's what sets us apart from the rest of creation, from the animals, from the monkeys. That we can think and we can work stuff out, we can therefore create and shape but of course intelligence rational thought that's something that develops and it's an ability that can be impaired or even lost so if this is where we locate human dignity then we diminish or even erase the value of unborn children of the very later years of life of the intellectually disabled I think if we look around, we also see that uh, our world attributes dignity to our, our ability for output, the extent to which we contribute to society. We even talk about the great contribution that people have made. We esteem those who make such a positive contribution. We ignore or even kind of demonize people who don't. And it turns people into machines, producers that are valued for what they do, not who they are. It seems to me that this is perhaps part of the reason that mental illness carries such a stigma in our society because those who struggle with it may be impaired in their ability to contribute. They're viewed as a burden. 
And the same could be said for the way that we diminish those with all forms of chronic illness or disability. If we attribute dignity to people's output. And the third category I've suggested, as I've been reflecting on this, is relationship. I think our society attributes dignity to our ability to create and sustain relationships. So we dismiss those who seem to fail in relationships. Now, personally, lots of people fear the social rejection they think will come with being single. Uh, people are ashamed of broken relationships. It seems to me that in our society's eyes, one of the most undignified aspects of dementia is the way that it strips away our relationships, leaving us unable to even recognise the ones who love us. And so we fear such an undignified end. That's even the term that we use, isn't it? Such an undignified end for ourselves or for those that we love. You see, our world, I think, locates human dignity in our intelligence, our output, our ability to sustain relationships. But these are things that can be achieved or not achieved. They're things that some people have in greater measure than others. They're things that can be lost. They are things that leave us valuing some people more than others. And the consequences of this are horrific. But God shows us the better way, the way that he has created us for, made in the image of God. Not dignified because of our greatness, but because of his. It's a dignity that's not based on the fickle question of who we are, but the bedrock certainty of whose we are. And that's the point that Jesus makes. Whose image does this bear, he asked, holding up the coin. And by implication, whose image do you bear? So give to God what is God's. And this is as much a message of hope as it is a firm rebuke. Because it clearly is a firm rebuke for those who would withhold from God. Those living like the tenants in the vineyard in the story that Jesus told. Those tenants who claim what is not their own as if it was. I mean, this is the sin of taking all that God has given us in this life and thinking it's for our gain, it's for our comfort, it's for our purposes. This is the firm rebuke to those who would reject the patience and the mercy of God sent again and again and again and instead seek to claim ownership of what is rightfully his. Jesus says, give to God what is God's and you are his. But it's also a wonderful message of hope and fulfilment and satisfaction to know whose you are. Because whether we're willing to recognise it or not, the underlying question that drives our behaviour is not who am I, but rather whose am I? Because no human has ever worked out who they are in isolation. We're created for community. So the question of who am I is always answered in relation to whose am I? Because it's all tied with our longing to belong. You see it in the deep tribal divisions in our society today that are splashed across our news feeds, right? Is it the political left or the right? Is it conservatives versus progressives, nationalists and globalists? Is it the Swifties and the haters? We're all scrambling out to work out whose we are, which tribe we belong to. 
But it's much more than just a thing that we see in the news, isn't it? I mean, I think it's actually the fundamental choice that every teenager has to consider when they, when they work out whether they're going to join in with the bullies at school or stand up for the bullied. They get to think about whose they are and what it means to belong. And it's not just the kids, is it? Because the same applies to the gossip over drinks after work. Do you want to belong to the cool crowd who are ragging on the weak ones? Or do you remember that you already belong to the creator of the universe? You are an image bearer of the Lord of all things. You are his. It's the same tension that every young adult has to wrestle with as they're tempted to fit in and have another beer with the lads or, or, or the family man is invited to, to kick on with the boys at the strip club after that workplace function. This is the reminder that you need to hear. You are created in God's image. You don't need to do this. You don't need to conform to the ways of this world to belong. You already belong to someone so much greater. It's the junior employee who's struggling for a sense of purpose, the senior executive who feels compelled to climb higher and higher, even if it means treading on the little people because that's what it means to belong, the retiree who feels like they've lost their meaning because they've been put out to pasture, no longer productive. They're not all that different struggling to work out who they are because they've lost sight of whose they are. But God shows a better way. Give to God what is God's. You are his image bearer. You are his. And we need to remember who this God is. At this point, as we continue in Mark's gospel, journeying towards the cross with Jesus, to remember who this God is. This is whose you are. It's the God who loved you in this way that he sent his only son. It's the God who humbled himself to enter his own creation so that he might show us the profound dignity that he's created in each one of us. It's the God who showed us his great glory through his great suffering, his self-giving sacrifice for the sake of those who turned their backs on him again and again and again. The God who went to the cross because of his massive vision for this world, of people from every tribe and tongue and nation gathered around his throne in joyful celebration. This is whose you are. And again and again in life, we are offered Jesus' invitation. Come and live like it. Give to this God what is God's. You are his dignified in bearing his image. And his invitation is to go all in with him, all in with everything you have, not so that you can belong, but because you already do. And that's the joy of knowing whose you are. So, as we're doing each Sunday in Lent, take a moment now to reflect, to, to pause before we rush on to the next thing and the next idea and the next conversation. And perhaps the screen, uh, the, the question up on, up on the screen will help you in that. As we journey with Jesus to the cross, what difference does it make to know whose you are? As we journey with Jesus to the cross, what difference does it make to know whose you are? Let's take a moment to reflect on that.